Del Gregory is a UK-based creative who has certainly led a fascinating life of travel, which has historically been driven by his work as a photographer. He began his professional career at the ripe age of 20 as a fashion photographer, but then found a groove shooting architecture, luxury hotels and exotic locations mainly. As retirement was looming, Dell decided to create a new type of magazine called B500, an online-only periodical featuring various cars and people from around the world. Impressive is the word that immediately comes to mind given he launched just before COVID-19 took the world by storm. Like many of us, Dell is a one-man band and his work now includes seven issues of B500, again an incredibly impressive feat given the last year of our existence. We go into how he's grown his audience while exploring how he defines B500's success. We chat about his early days getting into the weeds of photography as well as the equipment he uses. Dell even gives us a glimpse into his life being chauffeured in helicopters around islands in the Indian Ocean. What a life that must have been. All that and more in what was truly a fun conversation with Dell. I'm your host, Wesley Smith, and you're listening to the Standard Age Podcast. Well, Dell, thanks so much for being on the podcast. Oh, it's a pleasure. It's uh, very kind of you to ask. Yeah. What do you have behind you there on the wall? It looks like a McLaren F1. It's uh, Yeah, it is. Yeah. It's um, a piece of art that I produced a couple of years back. Oh, nice. And I, when I was um, sort of photo painting. Oh, okay. And I did a bunch of them for, for various people that had nice cars. And I just fancied doing that one for myself. Oh, nice. They're on canvas, so it's just it's uh, acrylic over canvas. Oh, cool. So it's um, in that McLaren orange as well. Yeah. 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 That's beautiful. I mean, what more can you say about an F1? I mean, that's arguably one of the most beautiful cars ever done. <laughs> I think so, yeah. I think, um, I'm not quite sure how I feel about the new, um, what's his name? Uh, the Golden Murray. Yeah. The, the new one, yeah. With the fan in the back? Or whatever that is. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Not quite sure yet, but um, I'm sure it will be, you know, it's probably sold out. I'm sure it's sold out um, yeah. already. Sure. Um, but interestingly, I'm not I'm not a huge fan. I like the McLaren, um, but yeah. I'm not a, what I'd say a massive fan. I kind of prefer um, things like the original Aston Martins, sort of the, uh, the DB4s from my era. Yeah, sure. The 60s, the, you know, the DB4, DB5. In fact, I'm shooting a DB6. It's one of my first shoots since the, what will be the end of lockdown in a month or so from now um, for the next issue of B500. Um, sure. So I'm shooting a, um, a DB6 in a little village near where we live. So quite looking forward to that. Oh, nice. Is it kind of the standard silver or gray? It's not, actually. It's a really unusual color. It's... Um, it, it's the guy that's got it is calling it an is calling it a James Bond gold, but it's not a James Bond gold really. It's a little slight shade difference, but it's effectively it's it's one of those colours that can look a different colour in different lights. Oh yeah, I love those. Yeah, whereas you see a silver car and you think that's a silver car, or you know, a blue or or even a green, nice nice sort of sage green. You know, it's sage green. But this is unusual because it can also look sort of reddy pink in different lights as well. Oh, it's interesting! Like a rose, like a rose gold, if you like. Wow, that sounds really interesting. It's it's yeah. I mean, some people say it's bronze. Some people say it's like rose gold. Some people say it's gold. He says right. it's gold. 
Um, I'll have to look up what the official colour is when I get a little bit nearer to the shoot yeah. for the article. But yeah, it's uh, it'll it'll be a good one. It'll be a nice little village. You know, we live we live in a um, an area of outstanding beauty in the Cotswolds in England. Um, some lovely sort of uh, golden stone cottages to to sort of park it up against that are timeless. You know, so it'll look like it could be from the, the correct era of the sixties and. Well, sure. And, and what I love most about Europe and or England or, or anywhere else around that air, area, but it's it's that juxtaposition of having such old buildings and then mixing that with modern objects. Like I love I love the idea of um, a very old home with very modern furniture in it. And actually yeah. just the other day on Instagram, actually, there's like a a 16th century chapel or, or a church that somebody converted into their home and really modern furnishings on the inside. And it was just the coolest because there it was like the walls are the same material as the ceilings, you know, and like everything is just cohesive back then because of the, the building, you know, philosophies and, and materials at the time. So it's just so cool. I just love that juxtaposition. But, um, Dell, if we could rewind for a second, where were you born? You were born in the UK, right? Uh, yeah, I was born in the UK. I was born in London. Okay. And how long did you stay in London? Well, I was born in 1960 in London. Um, so we stayed until, or I stayed until I was 16. So until 1976. Um, and then I left school and really wanted to travel. I'd, I'd been photographing for already for three years since I was 13. Um, and my wow. dad had built um, a dark room in my bedroom that I used to share with my brother. My, my, my brother's nine years older than me. So by this time he'd gone off to university. So I had the room to myself and it was a big room. So my dad converted half the room into a dark room. So I used to get home from school and go and develop my own films. Um, and then when I was 16, for my 16th birthday, they bought me a, um, a, a really great camera for the time, which was the Olympus OM-1 uh, with some lenses. And that was really the, the real start of my interest, proper interest in photography. So to answer your question, I left in the following year in 77. Um, and I made a massive uh, jump from London because I went from London to Vancouver. Right, right. Well, what was your what were your folks doing while you were a kid? And did your dad shoot photography as well? Was that, no, was he it... didn't. So he built that dark room just for you, just, literally just for me. Yeah, I, mean, it's, he, I think he he. Uh, I, I wouldn't say I was a rebellious child, but I was probably I was probably a kid that didn't really know what he wanted to do until I was around 13. Now, I don't think that's unusual, but once right. I hit 13 and I, I, I used to borrow his camera, which was a, a Helena Paulette, I remember. Um, and I used to use up all the film in it and he's, oh, you know, great. We'll have to get you a camera one day. Um, and then, as I say, when I hit 16, that's exactly what they did. Um, and it kind of went from there. Um, but he, he had no kind of real interest he he had more interest in art which is maybe where my creative side comes from but he mm -hmm. was an artist so he would set up easels and and paint ships and all sorts of stuff um uh, my mum not so not so artistic more practical um and so no real ph photographic interest uh, not really so i guess because i wasn't a particularly good painter 
um, I could express myself through photography. Sure. Back then, of course, everything was film. So you, you've got to cut your teeth on on understanding cameras, really. And so it right. took a, two or three years to, to get to grips with, you know, speeds, film speeds, ISO, apertures, shutter speed, all the rest of it. And then it kind of kicked off from there. Um, and we, we have um, some family that moved to Canada. Um, they had a successful business here in the UK, uh, just outside London. In what industry were they in? They had a farm um, and it was it became a, a successful um, farm and they had a um, uh, like, like a roadside shop that, that ended up being almost something like the size of a supermarket at the side of the road. It was it was huge. Selling wow. just about everything. Um, and my uncle was in insurance and they he retired and they decided to up sticks from London or from Kent, where they had lived at this time, um, to Canada. Hmm. And there was an open invitation to all family members, if ever you want to come, come out to Canada, come out. And of course, at that time, it wasn't, it, you know, it, I know I'm only going back to 70, 76, 77, but it, there wasn't the travel and the, the aircraft travel like there is today you don't you know nowadays you just go yeah okay i'll be there i'll see you in 10 hours uh but back then it was like a major operation a major trip so and they had silverware on the plane back then it wasn't just plastic you know it was actually like proper flatware yeah yeah i do remember that yeah and, and then sort of a, almost like a silver service like china service as well yeah. um so so i i made this decision and and uh said to my parents i think i'm gonna go out and visit uh aunt and uncle and um, my cousins and they thought you know that sounds like a good idea um so of course packed the camera um went from london to vancouver uh, my first trip abroad uh, at the age of 17. what did that flight cost do you have any idea um it, no i don't really but i seem to remember that it would have been somewhere around the sort of 260 280 pounds something like that maybe 300 maybe 400 bucks something like that incredible it was my first trip was an interesting one because it, um there, there was a guy who was doing budget flights back then called freddie laker and he had aircraft they were um, dc-10s and they called he called them sky trains but they were flying um london new york was the main route for for freddie mm -hmm. maker sure um, he was doing the first kind of budget travel um but that he then expanded out to other areas and one of the routes he did and i don't know why it might be worth googling why um i, I never have done but he he flew to vancouver so i bought a i got my first trip on a freddie laker sky train to vancouver um and it kind of was the start of what then become um a 17 year love affair with Canada, where I ended yeah. up living. So I was backwards and forwards every year until I was 34 um, and lived there for eight years. Wow. It was, that's quite a big leap from 17, but effectively, <clears throat> excuse me, I became a professional photographer uh, about 20, age 20. Um, and I would be in Vancouver and then I'd travel down to LA, um, do some fashion shots down there, sometimes out to the islands, um, to Hawaii. Um, and it kind of has grown ever since from there. So I've, I've hardly ever put a camera down and I've hardly had a year where I've not been on a plane. Right. Yeah. I think that's probably true for a lot of us. Um, with regards to what you were shooting subject wise, did you ever get into landscape photography or anything like that? I mean, Vancouver's so picturesque. 
it is. I'll tell you what's funny about that is that um, my 17 year, um, as I call it, love affair with, with Canada and, and British Columbia in particular, um, <laughs> it, it's a funny story because having lived there for such a long time and photographed um, and worked, if you like, out there, I, I, I'm one of those people that, that I don't photograph where I am because I always think I'm there. So I'm, I'm going to see it tomorrow and I'll do it tomorrow. And consequently, when I did come back in 90, 1994, I suddenly realized I hadn't photographed any of the British Columbian landscape. I had, I had thousands of pictures of, of uh, fashion models and cars and, and goodness knows what else, but I had no pictures. And I, you know, I did kick myself in the back of the shins a little bit and thought, you know, that, oh, why haven't you got any, you know, I had a few, but, but nothing like. And I guess it came down to interest as well, subject interest. Sure. Um, and I was a lot younger then and, and possibly didn't appreciate that landscape as I certainly would now. Sure. Um, and so I traveled, you know, all through BC and Alberta and, um, and, and way up, way up north of BC um, and pretty much every province of Canada during my time that I was there from east to west, um, but ended up living in BC um, in the interior, um, uh, about, about 200 miles from Vancouver inland between Calgary and Vancouver in a place called the Okanagan Valley. So what made you settle there as opposed to the city proper if you're shooting things like fashion? It's, I think it was wanting a home rather than, than a place of business. So it was having almost like wanting the best of both worlds and at that time being able to have it. So we lived, um, we lived on, in a house on the lake. There's a, there's a, you know, it's not difficult in Canada to live by lake. Right. Um, but there, there was a, a 90 mile long lake called Lake Okanagan. Um, and the city at the southern end is Penticton and the city at the northern end is Vernon. And I lived in a, in a, and it's a wonderful sounding place. I lived in a little tiny place called Peachland, um, which is halfway up the lake in the hills. Um, and it was a lovely, lovely house that overlooked the lake. Um, but I, it was in those times where you could jump on a plane uh, to Vancouver and be there in an hour right. um, if you wanted to do that. And then, of course, catch a connection to wherever you wanted, you know, out to the islands or down to L.A. or whatever. So it's a bit like having the best of both worlds, really. Yeah, um, I, I was with a girl at the time. I was a girlfriend at the time I was living with, and she had a place in Vancouver in Granville Island, um, which was not too shabby, um, and a nice place to get get to when we wanted to be in the city. And then we had the house on the lake in in the Okanagan, so it really was like living the best of both worlds, I guess. Yeah, that sounds incredible from a lifestyle perspective. What got you into shooting fashion to begin with? Were you shooting men and women or just women? Or? I, was, I was shooting women. And I, I guess the answer, answer to that, what got me into it was women. Um, I was going to say, it's, <laughs> that's enough for me. <laughs> I think if you, ask, if you ask someone like David Bailey that question, it, it's, he, he doesn't smile when he says it. He just very dryly says, women. Yeah. It's, it's, it's like almost like an obvious answer to him. But no, it, it was very much a case of um, I had an interest in fashion. Um, I, I had a very healthy interest in women, if we can say it in that, in that context. And basically I, um, you know, I was young, I was a photographer, I was, I had a, I had a British accent, um, and I was having a great time in, in places like LA and Hawaii and, and Vancouver. So, right. um, I had some connections as well, which of course is always a way in the door of, of one particular area of, of anything, you know, in this case of photography. So I, I did some fashion work there and then I did some fashion work in the obvious places in, in the UK as well, 
um, and Europe, like Milan and Paris, London. Um, not terribly serious stuff, not, not the circuit, as they would call it, but my own stuff. And then I had a magazine called Fashion House, um, and that was running here and running in Vancouver as well. Um, and, and it was funny because in the Okanagan in BC, they hadn't seen anything like it before. They hadn't seen somebody come into this little area and produce a fashion magazine. Um, right, so right. I sort of shook it up a little bit and, and they enjoyed that. And I enjoyed producing it and doing the traveling. Um, and I guess, you know, almost to that point of, you know, here I am 40 years later, still doing that kind of thing only now with cars and car, car culture. So I'm assuming you moved on from that initial Olympus. What were you shooting with those early days of like your magazine type stuff? Yeah, I, I did move on. I, I um, went on to Nikon or Nikon okay. after yep. that and, and still manual cameras like FM2s, that sort of thing, um, which again, I enjoyed. It was still still way before digital this was. Um, so I was still shooting, still shooting um, uh, film, 35 mil film. And I started to delve a little bit into uh, bigger films. So I, I go to, um, I, I got a Mamea um, 6x7. Um, so, you know, much, much clearer, bigger film. And then I, I went down the inevitable Hasselblad route, uh, yeah. shooting 6x6. Um, no, I guess that's still considered medium format then. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, and now, you know, nowadays I've got a project that I'm working on at the moment, which will be shooting with a very old Fuji six by nine. So mm. going back to film, there's a lot of photographers now that are, that are sort of making that leap back. Um, you know, digital is great, but a lot of people are now saying, you know, let's get back to how, how it used to be. And, and there's a, there's a, a much greater understanding, I think, of how cameras work when you, when you work with film. Um, and of course it's much more labor. Um, intensive, intensive so you, yeah. you're you're having to work a lot harder to get the results but you're also having to wait a lot longer to get the results which um of course back then it was nothing you know you, you you just took that as how it was but nowadays um as my partner caroline reminded me last night you've got your phone which you take a snap and you're looking at it in that second right. um how would i you know she said how will you cope now you know back with film because i'm so impatient you know, the older I get, the more impatient I get. And I said, well, you know, it's it's because it's almost like a hobby side of what I'm going to be doing. It's it'll be I'll just wait. But it's it's fine. You know, it's um, it is what it is. But I, I wasn't in fashion for very long, um, mm. about three, four years, I guess. Um, OK. And next was um, luxury hotels. OK. So how did you find your voice then within photography? Yeah, mostly because it was through magazines and, and it was, a, again, I think that I was, um, I, I think I was, I guess we all say that, but but I think I was born in a great time in the 60s so that by the time I hit, um, the, you know, the mid 70s at age 17, uh, the jobs were, were not scarce, jobs were, you know, free for all. And I just made the decision to become a photographer. It wasn't, it wasn't a, something that I had to give much thought to because that was what I wanted to do. And I saw that as, you know, okay, that's what I'll do. And mm -hmm. by the time I was 20, I was earning through supplying shots to magazines right. in different parts of the world. Um, but I lost the, in lost the interest in fashion just because there's so much standing around waiting for um, all the prepping for, for models. So right. whilst they were prepping, I was, I was, you know, if we were in some exotic location like Fiji, I was looking at the hotels and barely concentrating on the job thinking, yeah, this is an amazing hotel. Let's take some shots of this. 
Yeah, very controlled environment as well. Yeah, and of course you don't. You, you, they, hotels don't answer back. You know, it's it's you know you, it's and, and I mean that in the nicest sense. It's uh, it's just that it's it's something that's static, and you can get on with the job. When it's done, you walk away, and, and it's you can do it on your own. You know, it's, sure. you just take pictures of the hotels. Um, but I went through a phase of um, there, there was a point where I kind of made the decision to only photograph islands and. Um, exotic locations and again single myself out for wanting to be a photographer that was known for shooting islands and and luxury sort of uh, resorts if you like so um, I then took it a stage further and made the decision to be an aerial photographer of hotels oh. um, because there weren't too many of those around at the time so that was kind of the next leap if you like and that really worked out for me because as I say there weren't many um, and I was invited by the Seychelles government uh, to go and work in the Seychelles for six months, which again was not too shabby. Yeah. And so I, uh, I thought, yeah, why, why not? And you know, I, I was taken all around by the Seychelles government to um, all of the Seychelles islands. Um, I had a helicopter at my disposal um, whenever I wanted it for aerial shots. I just had to make a call. My pilot, who was Swiss, would turn up wherever I was staying in the hotel, in in the helicopter, door off. I'd get in, strap myself in, hang out the helicopter, and do the aerial shots. Of course, nowadays, again, that's a, that's another job that's that's doesn't exist because of drones. Right, right. And you must have had one heck of a steady hand as well, because I mean, the vibrations and such. I mean, helicopters move around so much. Yeah, and good pilots, but um, I, yeah. I did a lot of that in Canada as well. I used to photograph for the um, BC Fire Service, so I'd, I'd photograph um, bushfires in the in the summer months, and then I'd I'd photograph um, res winter resorts, ski resorts in the winter. So I'd, I'd I'd burn myself in the summer, and I'd freeze myself in the winter. Oh my gosh! There was, I I used to have a. Um, a really good friend in Canada that was the chief pilot for Canadian helicopters. And he, he used to in the winter just say, uh, he'd phone me up and say, um, do you want to go skiing today? And I'd go, yeah, yeah, that'd be good. Um, I said, do you want, do you want me to meet you up the hill? And he'd say, oh, I'll pick you up. And I said, what, what in the company car, which is what I used to call his helicopter. Right. Yeah. I'll pick you up in the company car. So I said, okay, fine. And he'd land. I had an apartment and, and in at that time, and he'd land in the car park and then I'd go out and put the skis in the ski pod below. And then I'd jump in and we'd, Hey, hi, we'd, we'd fly up to the top and he would let me out at the top. So I'd get to ski down all the first morning virgin snow. Oh, right. And then he'd go and land in the car park and then put his skis on and come join me. So it was, yeah, it was, it was good times. Yeah. That's brilliant. Wow. So who was hiring you back then? Like what magazines were you working with mostly? A lot of them were, were local to, in, in Canada, it was a lot of local sort of Canadian magazines at the time, sort of what I'd call regional magazines. So there mm. were a couple in BC that, that were local. Um, but a lot of the work that I've done over the years since that time has been for myself. So I've always thought that as a photographer, um, if I wanted to make, you know, some better money back then, um, why don't you just cut out the, the whole thing of, of selling your work to magazines and produce the whole thing and produce a magazine. Cause right. I had this design and uh, design interest and um, writing interest as well at the time. Um, and, you know, I, I, 
I'd studied English and thought, well, I might as well put it to good use um, and write as well as photograph. So I produced a magazine in Canada called Fashion House that was quite successful. I then did a, a local one in the Okanagan that became quite successful, then a couple of books. So, and then sold the books, you know, um, print, printed them, got a printer in uh, Saskatchewan to, uh, to print in bulk, shipped them to BC, sold them all in BC, and went so on to the next project. These were all just cold calls? Like, how did you find publishers and, and you know, the actual manufacturing of the magazine, so to speak? Well, I, I, I became a sole publisher. I became the publisher of the magazines. So I, I basically did everything. Um, so, so a little bit like I'm doing with B500, I, I, you know, from start to finish. So I, I have that background, if you like. So it was when I, you know, to bring it forward for a minute, when I did decided to do B500, it was a little bit like falling off a log because I've been doing that sort of project for 30, 40 years. So um, going back to then, I found it an easier way of actually doing business than um, trying to approach magazines and then they have to go through decision-making process and, and, you know, they have to get 12 people around a table. And I've never been one of those people. I like it. I like dealing with, with, you know, the main person of a business. So they make decisions. Um, and I've, the, the older I've got, uh, the, the more that's the case, you know, if somebody's going to say, Oh, I need a committee and I need to sit around a table for three weeks, then I, I tend to move on. You yeah. know, if you can make a decision and you think it's a good idea what I'm offering, let's do some business. And that's kind of has been my mantra, I guess, for quite a number of years now. Right. And and so I, I did from about, I guess I was about 25 by this time, um, start publishing myself uh, of magazines and books. So I did, I did a book on um, the um, five-star hotels of Fiji uh, the same with Seychelles, same with Mauritius. And they were all places where I had all the content because I'd been down there photographing out of helicopters. So I already had all that. I then just said to, to the hotels, do you, do you want these images? And they, they were, oh, back then it was like, yeah, yeah, yeah. We, we want aerial shots. Wow, we've never seen these. Yeah. So it was a bit of a kind of a double whammy because they'd buy the images. And then I also had them in the books and magazines. So I was selling the books and magazines and the images to the hotels. And of course, right. that, that's gone now as well, because um, of Instagram. Yeah. And I bet a lot of those images nowadays wouldn't be as beautiful as they were back then, because, I mean, who pays attention to the roof, you know, of, of the hotel these days? And or they're just clad with solar panels or something like that, where it's like. Yeah, I, I think it was, I, I mean, I, I remember there were a couple of shoots I did in Fiji where they, they I mean, they're hard to forget because they're just, it was so, such a dramatic approach. So we approached sort of from 50 feet towards the beach um, and the hotel sort of opens up. But again, these days you'd shoot that with a drone, you know, right. you'd take that drone off the beach, you'd, you'd take it out, you know, a few meters out to sea and then you'd bring it back in filming. And, and so that, that doesn't exist anymore, which is why you mm -hmm. don't see low-flying helicopters over hotels anymore, because you don't, you know, with guys hanging out the side, because you just don't need to go to that expense. You get a $500 drone uh, with a good camera in it, and, and you can do that, that stuff. Yeah. Have you been back to any of those five-star hotels to see any maybe renovations or anything like that, where your book presents almost a different object, so to speak? I have, I have a nice story about that, actually. I have a... I have a um, perhaps perfect story to your question. Um, 20 years ago, I was invited to the opening of a, um, a private island in the Maldives. And I 
obviously went and I photographed the island. And then, um, but I guess it was about four years ago was the 25th anniversary. So it's say it was 25 years back I, I went. And then about four or five years ago, I was invited back um, to, to do it again for their 25th anniversary. Um, so I said to Caroline, um, look, you know, this is an opportunity for us to go down there for a week. They're offering me this, this gig to do this as, as a, you know, I shot it 20 years ago. Let's go back, see what it's like. And I'm going to shoot it again. And they're going to have all the, all the images. Well, about that time, I'd also been um, offered um, to become a, a Hasselblad ambassador. So Hasselblad said, hey, look, if you're going to do this, here's a bunch of cameras, take them with you. And we'll have all those images. Thank you very much. So I said, "Incredible, yeah, that works for me." So the, the 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 fun part of the story is that here we here we are down on this this idyllic uh, island in the middle of the Indian Ocean in the Maldives that you can walk around in like twenty minutes, and we had one day of rain, just one. So I said to Caroline, "Yeah, let's go. They've got a library. Let's just go. It's raining. Let's go in the library." So we did, and she's sitting down with a book and I'm looking through the books on the shelf and all of a sudden I go oh my goodness and she said what I said look what I've found and it was my book um from 25 years ago yeah that was you know a little bit old and ragged but it was on their bookshelf um from from a book that I had um produced 25 years ago and put that particular island into and that was for me that was you know like the ultimate it was you know here i am 25 years later back on the island there's a book of mine you down here in the indian ocean on, on their bookshelf so yeah that was pretty special um and they gave us just the most incredible time as well for that week that we were down there um and so yeah i have a couple of times i've been back to different places i've never went i've never been back to the seychelles but i think i i kind of did that so much that it's one of those places i, I don't feel the need to right. probably ever go back to because I was there for, for six months. Uh, Mauritius, we've made quite a few trips back to. Sure. Uh, because it's such a diverse island for, for hotels. Um, and Hawaii, um, I ended up, my, my first marriage, I ended up getting married in Hawaii. Um, so we went out and we flew to, um, flew into Oahu and did the tour of Oahu. And, you know the, the Honolulu, the obvious stuff, and then we flew to Kauai, and we toured Kauai, and then we got married on Lanai. Oh, nice! Yeah, the Four Seasons. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> at uh, Manalei Bay, Manalei Bay. Yeah, and there's a there's another one in the hills on Lanai called the Lodge at Koeli. Yeah, that's um, it's kind of like a hunting. Type yeah, of exactly. Yeah, situation. and it's uh, it's it's almost like a like a British hunting lodge. You know, the mist yeah. comes down into the pines and, and it's it, it's very different from driving back down the hill to the to the beach. Very different. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Great experience. I, I absolutely adore Hawaii. Right. I mean, who, who wouldn't? Um, but there's, you know, it's a long way from the UK, which is why I'm glad when I lived on, on the West Coast that I did it so often because it's, you know, it's a heck of a journey from here, um, but was, was, you know, nowhere near that journey from, from LA or Vancouver. You and I share something that um, I think a lot of creatives um, live out. You and I both are the type to stay up late. Yeah. Have you have you always been that way, and are you always are you still somewhat of a night owl even today? 
Yeah, completely, completely. It's, um, I put it down to about, about 10 or 15 years ago, I went to see a doctor um, because I, I wasn't sleeping. And he said, tell me about your lifestyle. What have you done? And I said, well, I've traveled all around the world for like 40 years. And he said, I'll stop you there. So I said, okay. He said, it's your body clock. Your circadian rhythm. Yeah. <laughs> it doesn't have a clue what day of the week it is, let alone what hour. So I said, yeah, that makes sense. So he said, no, seriously, that's that's why. He said, You're, you know, do you find yourself falling asleep at 2 p.m.? I went, yeah, that, but that could be age. He said, no, that's because your body clock is doesn't have a clue where, where you're at. So I said, you know, is there any way around it? And he sort of shook his head in the negative and said, you know, no, you, you've kind of ruined your system because... I was literally back then on planes once a week and I had a, I was doing some um, contract work for an American publishing company and I was flying to Washington and New York every 10 days, two weeks. And then I was flying to LA from London. Um, this was obviously when I was back after 1994. And so I, I yeah, I, by the time I got there and I was expected to work at the other end once I landed in LA, um, it was uh, there's a funny story about a, about a bit of work actually i flew from london to la and we'd always have a it was with some editor guys that, that from this american publishing company that i was working with on a contract and so we it's 12 hour flight from london and we'd always had a little bit of drink on board quite a little bit of drink on board but we were always expected to to work as soon as we got off whatever the time so we'd, we, we, there was one, this one trip we would do, you know, you call it work, but they were parties. They were some music industry parties. So I, I, I was ferried to this party in, in LA, um, having just got off the, the plane, still staggering around, having drunk so much on the plane. So for 12 hours, hadn't slept. And I was introduced to a couple of people and I had a bottle of Budweiser in my left hand, which is the watch, the, the, the hand I wear my watch. I'm so sorry, by the way, for the Budweiser. Yeah. <laughs> so this Bud's for you, as they say. Yeah. And so I, I'm introduced to Michael Stipe from REM. Wow. So I, yeah, guy says, yeah, this is Del Gregory. This is Michael Stipe. Hey, hi. And we do the, the, the hi, how are you doing? So halfway through a conversation with, with Michael Stipe, he says, uh, what time do you have? And so I got the bottle in my left <laughs> and I've got, I've got some cream chinos on, which were all rage back then, trust me. And I, I look at my watch and I hadn't realized because I'm slightly drunk and I'm also jet lagged that I'm tipping the entire bottle of Bud down the front of me before he then says, hey dude, yeah, look. look. And I, I oh man, and half a bottle of Bud down the front. But what was, what, if that's not funny enough, that's a great introduction to being introduced to Michael Stein. If that's not funny enough, we then had to go to another party after that. Oh no. Time to change my trousers. <laughs> and it was, it was the, it was the British ambassador, it was the American ambassador to Britain who was hosting a party in LA. So I'm wheeled into this, to this party by this time, I think it was 10 PM. Um, I probably have, you know, sort of a, an overnight, shadow beard you know where I hadn't, I hadn't been to sleep and and staggering slightly and and the whole of my crotch covered in in you know beer well, yeah beer <laughs> I knew yeah, that yeah, but nobody yeah. else knew that and then I'm introduced to the British ambassador in Los Angeles and yeah it's they were funny times they were good times I don't know it sounds like you might have fit right into LA 
Maybe. Well, you know I'm a watch nut. What was the watch you were wearing? Oh, back then? Yeah, when you met Michael Stipe. Wow. It was probably a... Um, wow, now you're asking. It was probably, I would think, a tag uh, Formula One. Okay. Something so like that. Car related. Yeah, I guess. Yeah, I, I didn't think of it like that. But yeah, probably probably was. Um, I, but I, I have gone through a lot of watches. I, I don't have a lot of disposable income to spend on watches that I perhaps would like to sure to buy join the club <laughs> well I, I I have my eye on a um I, I was 60 in last July and I had nice. my eye on a on a Chopard Mille Mille um with the Dunlop strap and oh, I've sure. still got my eye on that but it hasn't it hasn't materialized yet in my watch box but I have got a, I have got a um Caroline bought me, um, which which was fantastic. Uh, my first manual um, watch box with a, oh, with a glass front, yeah. so that I can see the watches turning. Um, and and I don't have particularly very expensive watches in it at the moment. But um, yeah, I like I like you know I've got a I've got a custom made um, black and rose gold Seiko uh, that was like a one of one that somebody made. Um, then I've got a yellow face Seiko, and I've got a Cool. A rather beautiful. Um, don't know if you'll have heard of these guys. JS Watch of Reykjavik. Oh yeah, in Iceland. Yeah. Well, I I actually flew to Iceland to pick it up, which is all part of the. So I had it made by these guys, and they're not. You know, it's. I think it was a couple of thousand, um, maybe two or three thousand dollars. So not not ridiculously. Yeah, I think they're about two thousand dollars. I was looking at one with uh, the Roman numerals on it. It's like they're thirty-eight millimeter. I can't remember what it's called, but. Um... Yeah, just such a beautiful, almost kind of ornate looking for the price, and it's just a really great dress watch. I think it's yeah, and and it's the people. It was about the people because I I just thought they were such lovely people, and they we'd been communicating via email, and it was a magazine some years back that I was working on. I guess back in 2011, 2012, something something like that. And I I wanted to do an article, but I thought well, there's nothing better than actually you know buying the product and actually going to pick it up. So we organized all that and, and then something happened and I couldn't go. Um, so I was quite disappointed about that. And then I got into another job, so I couldn't, you know, not some more work. And then eventually I, I wrote back and I said, look, I, I really need to come over, pick the watch up, but I really want to meet you guys because we'd had a really good relationship on email by this point. And they were fantastic. I got over there and um, they took me out to dinner and, you know, we went to a lovely restaurant in Reykjavik, um, some nice local foods and, then they took me around the island and I saw the Northern Lights. I was incredibly lucky. Um, wow. And of course, I picked up my watch. Um, and they've got like a hall of fame of um, celebrity that, that have worked in Iceland and then always go into JS Watch um, to, to buy a watch. So they had, you know, I, I know, Tom Cruise and Tom Hanks and various other um, film stars that, that were on the wall collecting their watch. And and they're just such nice people. They're such a small team of people that... that and the master watch guy that that um, uh, puts them all together and, and their limited run. So yeah, it's it's a really great experience if anyone wants to enjoy Iceland and and Reykjavik and buy a lovely watch as well. Yeah, I also love the um, kind of their photography, if you will. It's it's very whimsical approach to you know he's usually got the the loop on his forehead and yeah yeah he's the, the guy. I mean he's he's I can't his name doesn't spring to mind. Um, 
and I don't want to try and try and pronounce something that's not going to be right. Um, but it, it, yeah, he's he's the main man. Yeah, uh, they do they do a lot of um, as you say, very whimsical. There's one in a uh, really muted colours in swimsuits, old fashioned swimsuits in a pool, and yeah. and then they've got the you know old fashioned old, old Dakota aircraft and flying jackets. Yeah, they're they're a really good bunch of guys. Um, yeah, and it's a family thing. Um, so yeah, if anyone it, it, seriously get over to Iceland and and, uh, and buy one of those. If you haven't heard episode one of the Standard Age podcast, then let me tell you about my friend Tim Jackson. As owner of Passion Fine Jewelry, Tim and his team specialize in fine jewelry, as well as some of the finest independent watch brands available. I'm talking about Gronfeld, Habring, Kudoki, Roger Smith, Roman Gauthier, Sarpaneva, the list goes on. The staff at Passion Fine Jewelry is literally made up of friends and family, so you will feel right at home if and when you visit. If California is out of reach, you can absolutely email or call the shop and they'll get you sorted. Visit passionfinejewelry.com for more information. As you all know, I'm a huge fan of using the right product for the right job. And like many of you, I appreciate products with a story. That's why I drive a Volkswagen GTI. It's a hot hatch with heritage. It's also why I'm into specific watches like my Tudor Black Bay. And that's exactly why I'm a fan of the indie accessory brand Contonement. Contonement makes a utilitarian cloth they simply call a kerchief. It's smaller than a standard bandana, but larger than a handkerchief, which makes it ideal to tuck in a back pocket or use as a neckerchief. I always take one on a bike ride or have one with me as a backup face covering. Not only do these kerchiefs satisfy several functions, but they look great too. Each set features illustrations celebrating icons of product design like the Omega Speedmaster, the Fender Stratocaster, or my favorite, of course, the classic GTI. Follow them on Instagram at Contonement Co. That's C-A-N-T-O-N-M-E-N-T-C-O or visit them at Contonement.co and use the code STANDARDH in all caps no spaces, for 20% off of absolutely everything in their online shop. Now let's get back to the show. Well, let's skip forward to B500 then. So what was the transition and how did B500 grow? Oh, first of all, explain what B500 is. Okay, so um, I'll go back a couple of years um, to my sort of semi-retirement, if you like. Um, Let me take it back a little step further actually because I, I made the decision when when um we had our daughter we've got i've got one daughter um elizabeth who's now 18 but uh, she's born in 2002 and it was at that time i was kind of burning out doing all of these sort of um, michael stipe type things um, you know and, and all of these la trips and 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 couldn't really take the pace anymore and it was i was in vegas i was in la i was in washington and in the end i just thought you know what i've got i've got a um a new daughter that I need to spend more time with at home. And so I'll take it easy and start doing more work here. So I did some contract publishing here. Um, bring that forward to about three or four years ago. Um, my daughter by then was you know, 15. And I kind of decided to sort of semi-retire, if you like, and just do projects, cherry pick projects that I want to work with. Sure. Um, I was still very much into publishing um, and photography, of course. Mm-hmm. So had, had it had the fact it was my life, really. Um, so I, I decided to um, produce another magazine and I thought, well, what do I want to do this time? And, and 
I, it came to me really quickly and it was it was car on car culture because I, I was you know like a lot of people I was subscribed to a lot of magazines and it wasn't that I thought I could do it better I just thought that I could do it I, I you know it doesn't have to be better it just has to to be something that you're happy to do because it was it was almost like a um not a vanity project but a but a retirement project mm-hmm. so that brings us to um about January of last year uh, where I made the decision that I was going to go ahead with this and do something and I would call it B500 and the reason I called it B500 um there's there's a uh, quite a funny backstory because I'll tell you my reason and then I'll tell you tell you because I can't tell a lie I'll have to tell you the full story please I was talking to the managing director of uh, an Aston Martin dealership um, and he, he, this was um, when we produced the first issue last year and he said oh B500 cool name he said yeah you've obviously named that after that brilliant driving road in Germany, in Bavaria, the B500. And I went, uh, yeah, no. <laughs> so he said, oh, right. So he said, oh, you'll have to tell people that's why you, so I said, yeah, I will now. But, <laughs> but because I can't tell lies, I also have to tell the real reason. So it would, that would make a great story in its own that I've named it after this road in Bavaria. You know, it's a, it's a brilliant driving road. But the truth of the matter is that um, several years ago, I launched what was then the first ever luxury portal for billionaires. Oh. And it was quite successful and I sold the business, um, but it was the first one of its kind. So it was like a magazine online, but in digital format, but as a wow. portal. How did you get in touch with them? Like, how did you? I, I had some connections <laughs> through some of the work that I'd been doing. Uh, as a photographer, but also as as a consultant in business to various people, and so I I made some connections. And it's such a back then it was such a small little club, so I I decided to call the portal Billionaire Five Hundred because when I started it, um, which was the the project I started in the UK when my daughter was born, back in two thousand two, I decided that. I would call it after the number of billionaires. So it was 500 at the time. I was going to say, yeah. Now like two and a half thousand globally. But at the time there were 500. So it was billionaire 500 and it had a great ring about it. Um, so it's a kind of, B500 is a little bit of a nod to my past, if you like. So it, nobody needed to know that really. Um, but of course now I tell everyone because of the, the Aston Martin guy that said, hey, it's named after the road in Bavaria. And I said, yeah, I'd like to say it was, but. And then, of course, I have to explain that it wasn't. It was named after... A better reason. <laughs> yeah, 20 years ago or whatever. So, so yeah, but, but I had Billionaire 500, sold it in 2007, um, very luckily, just before the Lehman crash. And um, Now, what, what kinds of things were on... You said it's a portal. Like, what, what, what does that entail? Well, it, it pretty much entails um, putting together a daily or weekly magazine. Instagram wasn't around then. Um, so it, it's like a, it was a website that you would load up daily with content for sale um, and pitch it through a private access code password to your, your database of billionaires and multimillionaires through real estate companies and through private jet companies and so on. So it was like a transactional website? Yeah. Interesting. So you could list your yacht for somebody yeah. to purchase. Okay. So, so a little bit like today, it's a little bit like James List. Yeah, or like Rob Report. Oh, right. Yeah, exactly. Like Rob yeah. Report or James List. So, so you know, always in that sort of publishing vein where there's a 
you know, there's a potential for a magazine or, or a website. Or I guess more like DuPont registry, I guess it probably, that would, that's probably a better example than Rob Report. Similar kind of things, DuPont, Rob, um, you know, they're, they're, they're all kind of similar, but yeah, DuPont very much so. Yeah. Um, so, so, you know, that's the background to how it started, but going back to January of last year, um, I made the decision to do B500 as a, as a magazine, as a digital online magazine, uh, and produce it free um, with no subscription. I'm kind of one of those people that, that I'm not very fond of clubs and exclusivity. Having said that I've just come from the B5 billionaire 500 world, <laughs> um, almost like a contradiction, but you know, that was 20 years ago. This is now. And I think that I just feel that to offer something to everyone and, and have it free uh, would, would have back then be a great idea. And of course it's an idea that's continued. So how it started back in January, February of last year, which is hard to believe it's only January, February last year, um, was that I was due to go to Milan for my first front cover. And I know the guys at Touring Superleggera quite well. And they, I'd photographed their Disco Volante series. Um, and I thought it would be great to have Touring Superleggera on the front cover of the launch issue of B500. So I organized that and bought the tickets to fly and then, of course, what happened next was that Milan was the first city in Europe to go into lockdown. So cancel the tickets. Um, and I'm sitting there on a on a Friday thinking, what am I going to do now in um, early March? So what do I do? I send an email uh, to Magnus Walker in L.A. And had you met Magnus before? No. Nope. Nope, never met Magnus, knew, knew of Magnus, and I knew about his cars. I knew he was from Sheffield, so a fellow Brit. Knew about, obviously, his Porsche collection, et cetera, et cetera. Never met him. Um, tracked his email down, sent him an email, and I said to Caroline, well, I'm not going to get a reply, but I'm going to send it anyway for a bit of fun. And within about two hours, I got a reply from Magnus saying, hey, hey, fella, yeah, how about coming and see me next Tuesday? What? So what did your email say? Uh, my email said I'm the, the sort of abridged version was, hey, I'm starting a new car culture magazine. It's coming out in April, issue one. Would you like to be on the front cover? Um, great. Thanks, Del. Um, and literally that was it. Not expecting even a reply. Well, I only ask because like most people, like I would say of any sort of notoriety or fame would like for my podcast, for example, right? Like if I tried to get somebody super famous as the first guest, they'd be like, who, who are you? You know what I mean? And especially given that you'd never met Magnus before, the reason I ask is because that initial email, that, that outreach obviously was compelling in some way. So I was just curious as to what verbiage you used. I, I think that also um, Magnus is unique in that in that sphere and i say that because now i've got to know him a little bit over the last year um the reason i say that is because i think he has a, a, an amazing attitude to people who who clearly want to do um work around porsche and around cars and he has a philosophy whereby i think he just thinks well yeah why not 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 why should i do it why not? So he has to find, he would have to find a reason not to do it. And that's Absolutely. a great, 
great philosophy. So I, I got this email back on a Friday saying, yeah, come next Tuesday. So I, I emailed him back straight away saying, okay, you do realize I'm in the UK. And he said, yeah, Tuesday, nine o'clock. So, okay. So I said to Caroline, hey, I'm going to LA next Monday. So she said, what? So I said, yeah, I've got to jump on a plane. So over the weekend, I packed a bag, got the cameras um, and I, I bought a ticket. Um, LA was still open, you know, it was only Europe that had shut down. So I jumped on the plane on the Monday, uh, got to LA, this time completely sober. Um, and Fair enough. <laughs> yeah, and having, having learned that lesson many years ago. Um, and I uh, got off the plane, had a hotel at LAX, got up the following morning, Tuesday morning, jumped in an Uber to uh, DTLA. Right. And uh, 9 a.m., knocked on his door, and there he was, went in, said hi, spent the day with Magnus taking pictures, chatting about England, fish and chips, Marmite, all sorts of different things, his mum in Sheffield. Um, had a great day. Then I got back in the Uber, back to the hotel, and then flew back to London. No kidding. So, yeah, and, and I think he, I think there was a, there was a, you know, Magnus, I think, respected the fact that AI said I'd do it and I turned up. That's the first thing. But I also think the, the, the thing that I think he respected was the fact that I'd only actually gone out there to do that with him. So it was a, you know, I'm flying in to do this with you. Then I'm jumping on a plane. I'm flying back. Then I'm yeah. going to spend a month putting it all together, which is what I did. And then the launch issue came out on 15th of April. So to bring that forward to where we are right now, um, I'm literally in the in the process right now as we speak of putting together the spring issue of 2021, um, which will come out on the exact same day as I published issue one. Beautiful. April 15 will be the spring issue. And I managed to pull together six issues 2020 through a global you know, lockdown. Um, so I'm, I'm pleased with that. And I, I had a lot of um, help and a lot of people who, I mean, you mentioned earlier, you know, why would Magnus give me the time of day, which is effectively, you know, a, a good, a really good question. And then I have to ask myself, why would Etienne Salome, the former Bugatti designer, give me the time of day? And Sasha Selepinov, the current designer of Koenigsegg, and, you know, and I could list on and on, but they all have. Um, and as each issue has come out, so it's kind of progressed to a next stage where, um, people are phoning and saying, hey, really love what you're doing. It's slightly different to, to anything we've seen. Would you be interested in doing a story with us? Um, and it's, all low, it's also about people who know people. So Magnus knew um, Phil, who I know right. you know, yeah. um, Toledano. And of course, I, I then got in touch with Phil and said, look, you know, should we do something? We ended up doing a, a fairly uh, humorous um, hour on Instagram Live. Um, I did an Instagram live with Magnus as well, um, which is very kind of, of him and them both. Um, and then got to know some people over the summer, like Etienne and um, Sasha. Um, I mean, really great people that are designing, you know, proper stuff like Sasha, the designer of uh, Koenigsegg and, and Etienne, you know, who designed the La Boite Noir. Um, just, you know, just incredible people. So yeah. I'm, I feel I'm in a very privileged position to to be editing this little magazine here in the Cotswolds that's got a global reach because it's free and online. And, and another thing I'm fairly proud of is the fact that it's now reaching pretty much every country in the world. Right. Um, which, which, you know, it's, it's, 
and it's free. You know, I'm I'm managing to to get it out. You know, as a as a free magazine, and it's you know I don't consider there to be competitors. Only people that I want to work with. So you know, any print magazine, as far as I'm concerned, is a is a colleague, right. um, or or an associate. I don't see anybody as as um, you know in any way competitive. Yeah, that's wonderful to hear. I mean, I I just posted yesterday, you know, um, on Instagram, a, a post about the idea of community and, you know, businesses helping each other. And, you know, we're all sort of in the same sandbox, if you will. So yeah, and especially now, I guess it's when it's, you sure. know, when it's as tough as it is out there for, for a lot of people. Mm-hmm. It's I think I've been lucky as well with the magazine, because when the first issue came out was when, when the world pretty much went into lockdown. So there was a, a lot of time where people were then um, forced to be at home and probably had much more time to you know, flick around online and look at B500. Yeah. Um, and possibly it grew through that period to where it is today. Um, and organically on Instagram, it's grown as well. It's, it was a, when I went out and flew, when I flew out to, to see Magnus, I had 300 followers on Instagram. Um, and it's, you know, it's, it's organically grown. I think there's about seven and a half thousand now. So it's not, it's not massive, but it's organic growth, which, which basically means it's people that want to be there rather than, you know, I can't, I don't understand these people that want to buy. I mean, what's that about? You know, they want to buy followers. What, what on earth for, you know, you either want people to follow, follow you because they like what you're doing or, or, you know, don't bother. Yeah. I mean, I guess my only response to that would be herd mentality, right? Like where, you know, the bigger following you appear to have will kind of make others want to join because, you know, fear of missing out. It's that FOMO thing, you know, and yeah, well, this must be, this must be something good. I better, I better follow as well. But, you know, then you find two seconds later that the content isn't what you want anyway, or what have you. But, you know, I've never, I've never paid for followers myself. Um, then again, my my followership isn't even as large as yours. It's a third, you know, for that for that matter. So, um, yeah, it's 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 crazy. How do you define success for B five hundred? Then, I think um, by the amount of countries that it's reached through, um, you know, I I've got facts and figures that through the um, software that I use for uh, the load up for the content. Um, and you know, I, I've bought the maximum whatever it is platinum package of information that you get back from that, and it, it's always great on on publication date um, and a few days after that because you literally see a map of the world start pinging in in color to where people have, have clicked on and look looked at it from, right. um, and it is pretty much now after what what is this? I did six last year issues. So this will be effectively the seventh issue. And it's pretty much all over the world, you know, and, and there's obvious places where it's not going to be, um, but but pretty much everywhere else, it's there's a there's like a shading of where people have looked at it. Um, to answer the question though, how do I define sex, success? I, th- I think um, it get, it, I get a lot of email, I get a lot of um, uh, pos- positive comments on Instagram um, and through the magazine. And I guess that it's still a bit of a hobby for me so it's not something that I need to it's not something that I especially need to monetize um as as you know I'm kind of consider myself to be almost retired and this is a this is a fun project but if other people are enjoying it then I'll keep doing it but if somebody says you know hello you know we're going to stop following you because we don't enjoy it anymore we don't like your content 
you know, if I get if I get a few hundred thousand people that say that, then I might think otherwise. But until I get those emails and messages um, saying, you know, negative ones, which I've never had, then I'll keep doing what I'm doing. I enjoy right. it. Hopefully everyone else enjoys it. You know, so, it's, we've got some great content. And we've got some some amazing, not that I'm plugging it because there's no need to because people either want to look at it or they don't. But I mean, this next one, I, I'm, I get so excited about each one. Yeah. The next one, I'm even more excited about the spring issue than I was about the the one I did in December. Yeah, I mean, I think it's just like any company, like for me, for example, I mean, you're a one-man band, I'm a one-man band, you know, I think it's like me doing a product launch. It's like I get so nervous and, and like, almost feeling sick, like... <laughs> Uh, just because I want it to be received well. And yeah, I know the work that goes into the things that I do. And I mean, even even when I launch a podcast, I'm like, well, I'm not even the guy speaking, but I just want somebody to, yeah. to like at least maybe like the questions asked so that hopefully the conversation <laughs> flows well and people are engaged, you know, like so be it content, your content, my products, you know, what have you. It's... Um, yeah, no, and on, on that subject, it, it, it obviously not not through our conversation now, but we've got to talk about your your watch box that I noticed, and I said we've got to, we've got to talk about that because that that will work really well, I think, with with a project through my other company, B500X, which is the design arm of B500. Well, absolutely, we can talk about it. I think um, it, there was literally fewer than a handful of people that knew about my watch box ahead of time, and one who will still remain nameless was like, I really feel like this is the kind of product that could easily slide into that collaboration type atmosphere. And I said, by all means. So I've actually already got, I'll tease this. Uh, I already have one collaboration lined up and, and that's, um, I'll leave those details for later, but yeah, I would absolutely love to talk to you about it. And um, you're aware of the, uh, I, I mean, it's out there for everyone to know, but uh, you're aware of the collaboration that I'm doing with Etienne Salome and Arconic. Um, yeah. And we're producing um, to begin with, we're producing five beach cruiser V8 defenders. And what I wanted to do and what Etienne wanted to do, Etienne's designing it. And then together we're, um, collaborating on what we want to add into that as a as a as something that's a very exclusive package for each of the five owners and one of the things that we'd thought about um was to have a um a lock box that's going to go in the back of the defender mm. um and within that lock box we're going to put some really really cool goodies um and so one of those really cool goodies i think we'll have to talk about with your watch box and it's just such a unique thing that you've produced and I, and I immediately when I saw it I thought this is very cool and we're going to have to have a conversation about this and it's kind of low number you know with us we're we're doing we're doing the five beach cruisers where everyone uh, anyone that's going to have one of those can can pick their own interior they can pick their own exterior color from from a any palette of colors that that they want to have sure so it's it's a custom um Etienne Salome defender built by Alconic so um, yeah, five truly unique vehicles, and I'm I'm super excited about that. And again, that's that's a project that came out of um, came out of the relationship that I I started with Etienne, 
and and I wanted Arconic to be involved because I think they produce a brilliant product. Um, and it's, you know, the North American, they're, they're UK based, but North American sold pretty much mm-hmm. left-hand drive. And we got talking and they were, I, I like going back to the, when we were talking earlier about decision-making, I, I, I can't be dealing with, you know, sitting around a table of committee members and it goes on for months. Right. So I approached Arconic and we wrapped this deal up within about three days, yeah. which is, which is phenomenal. Um, for the amount of work that's going into this project to wrap the whole thing up in three days. I was really impressed with the way they handled this. And then Etienne was the same. It was like, yeah, you know, what, what, what do we need to do? And so we, we did the deal between the three of us. So it's a collaboration between Arconic P500 and Etienne. Um, but that to me is how you do business, you know, if you can. Um, right. It can't always be like that, but wherever possible, just to, just to get people in a room that actually want to get on and do it, and then thrash out the details after that. Yeah, no, absolutely. I think, you know, I'm kind of on board with what you're saying. Like, why marinate? It's a yes or a no kind of thing, you know? Well, I worked with a guy many years ago. It's, it's a funny story. Of, we were going to go into business together. And I think back to it and I think, oh, thank the Lord that I didn't. Because it, it, I said, look, do you want to design the business cards? He said, yeah, yeah, that's a really good idea. Three weeks later, um, he'd... he'd sent me you know i don't know 18 different variations on the business card um and i said look you know we got to, this isn't an important thing it's we've got to just put our name on a card and, and and run just print them and no no it's it's really important i said well okay three weeks later we still hadn't made the decision and in the end you know we didn't go into business together but i i like to say look this is what i'm going to do here's a sketch of what i think it's going to look like um Let's let's say we're going to do business, and if along the way it, you know something goes wrong, then fair enough. But we, right. we iron it out. We figure out between us how it's going to be worked out. Um, and so far, since I think it was about uh, about about August probably that that we made the decision to on the Arconic deal. Um, you know, we've, we're all getting on really well. We do Zoom calls between Etienne and and uh, the, the guys at Arconic and myself. And we, we, we're thrashing it out, what they're going to look like, what, what the interiors are going to be. You know, I wanted a bench seat. Somebody else didn't. Somebody wanted this. But you thrash it out. You get on with it and you make it work. Yeah. And what I do know is um, our first one goes into production and will be finished week one of August. Um, so we've, we've thrashed that out between us. Um, and we've got, yeah, there's been so many inquiries for it. That's so exciting. Yeah. Oh, man, that's awesome. Since you launched B500, has your style of photography changed at all? Or do you kind of take the same approach? Like, how is it different? That's, yeah, that's an interesting question. No, no, I wouldn't say that it has. In fact, um, I suppose the only thing that's changed about it, um, well, two things. The only thing that's really changed is I haven't been able to do much of it um, right. because of the lockdown. Um, so a lot of it is is from people that have got stuff and and. and you know, we're working with companies that have got good stock photography that we're using or whatever. But we're now starting to get, you know, to get back out there. The world's opening up a little bit. And I've got, as I mentioned, my first shoot, proper shoot with this DB6. Um, so the only thing that will be changing is that I'm I'm getting, as I've mentioned earlier, back into analog. Um, and so I want to produce a combination of, um, I shoot with Leica now. And so I'll be shooting shooting digital Leica for the main shoot. Um, and then I'd like to shoot some some film as well to get some nice grainy um, shots that, that like I started with, you know, years ago. 
Yeah, it's funny. That was my next question is like, what's in the camera bag these days? So which, uh, which Leica are you using primarily? Well, do you know what? It's I, I have a, here's the thing. And it goes back to, um, I, I referenced David Bailey at the start of our conversation. And I reference, I'll reference him again now because he's always been a bit of a, bit of an idol um, of mine. And it's something that he said many, many years ago. And that is that he doesn't take photographs, he takes pictures. Mm. And I, I kind of figure that as well. And I remember a conversation, he, he swears, you know, at everyone, uh, like an absolute trooper. And I remember him saying years ago, but without expletives, that, that it doesn't matter what you're shooting with, you're taking pictures, just get on with it. And I think there's a certain element of that. And, and so I'm not, because I shoot like, or I'm not a like a snob, um, the same as I wouldn't be an Olympus or a Nikon or a Canon snob. It's, it's, a, it's a tool, if you like. Um, the reason that I've, I've gone back to Leica is that they're just so reliable and mechanical and even the digital ones are just such a such a beautiful thing to hold and heavy weighty camera like and just the sound of the click and, you know. and yeah but it, it, I'm only using a um, an X Vario which is a, a low end low end some would say a compact but it has such an amazing I think it's a I think it's a very underrated camera first of all mm-hmm. and I think it's uh, a lot of photographers that have used them have said it's it's a great way of putting it as well it's a lens with a camera attached <laughs> because the lens is is just a typical phenomenal uh, like a lens with it with with basically a wraparound so it's not a you know it's it's not a I don't know what's the new the Q Q2 or whatever it is the the you know I I don't need to spend you know hundreds of thousands on the latest stuff to get shots that I'm going to get um, and that's that's not me being arrogant because I've been a photographer for 40 years it's just a fact I can get shots with that um, I did the David Gandhi shoot for the issue six before Christmas and I used the Xperio and I, I'm absolutely I don't don't really mind whether anyone else likes them but I'm absolutely thrilled to bits for them you know I, I took a couple of hundred pictures and I would I would line those up against any other camera and say you know what do you think of these and see what you know other people think well david gandy's an interesting subject right because he's in front of the camera constantly so was he mesmerized or shocked at all like that you were using that camera as opposed to something maybe quote unquote heavier duty oh i thought at first you meant mesmerized as in you know he'd met somebody that was as gorgeous as you <laughs> Well, it, I'm sure that was the initial reaction. We did, we did have a laugh actually on that shoot because he's I don't know six foot whatever the heck he is, and I'm five foot whatever the heck I am, um, and there, there was I think it was about a foot difference, and uh, yeah, we did have a bit of a laugh about about things like that, and uh, yeah, clearly he's he's a very uh, successful male model, um, probably the most successful male model of of his of his time. Um, a, a genuinely lovely guy, and, and we did have a good laugh uh, on that shoot. Um, not at all pretentious about about anything. Um, and we had a couple of people that that happened to walk past at the hotel we shot it at, and, and say, "Hey, do you mind if I have a look?" And I, I would just stand back and you know stop stop filming, stop shooting, let whoever want have a look around the car. He was again, you know, yeah, open the door, have a look, you know, have a look at it. And it's it was a very low low key shoot um but no not in the slightest i mean you know d- d- he he he's used to magazine work he's used to working with i'm sure many different photographers using all sorts of equipment and tons of equipment um 
but I guess I'm kind of, I, I'd describe myself, if I was going to describe myself, as old school. You know, someone that would, I'd, I'd be quite happy turning up with a little compact camera and, and still getting good results. Right. And I think that that goes back to how I did my, you know, inverted commas training of, of you know, when I was 13, um, you, knowing how to use a camera. Um, but it also then brings me forward to, to answer your question fully of what am I using? And the answer is um, that a modern up-to-date like a digital, but also a, a 1938 like a film camera. Oh, beautiful. So, you know, going from one extreme to the other, really, where, um, and, and it's, a, it's, it's really a testament to, to the quality of Leica that these things, what is it, 85 years old? Yeah, that they endure. Yeah. It's a mechanic, it's a piece, you know, it's, it's an engineered, possibly over-engineered mechanical device that, that, you know, that just works and does what it's supposed to do. Um, and I guess that's why I use them rather than, than it happens to have the red dot on the front. Yeah, sure. 1938 one doesn't, but right. well before that, but, but it's, it's because of what it is and how it works. You know, I think that's, um, that's important when you're doing a job and it is a job. I, I need to get good results from what I'm doing. So I see it as a, see it as a job, you know, I've got to get good results. So after all these years, I need to use something that I know I'm going to be happy using. Yeah, totally. I, um, I know a lot of photographers speak about how important it is to print their work. Do you, do you ever print your photos these days? I know they live online, obviously. Yeah, not anymore. And I think there's a, there's a, there's a bit of a sadness to that, but, but equally there's also, it's, it's a really interesting point. And about a month ago, um, I made this massive decision um, to go through some boxes of, um, 35 mil slides that that I had from uh, 30, 40 years ago. And I mean, I, I had thousands of them and I just made the decision um, to actually get rid of them and dump them. Mm. And it, it wasn't as hard, as hard a decision as I first thought it, it was going to be. And Caroline was like, what are you doing? You can't do that. It's like your life's work. But really it wasn't because as with any photographer, um, you, you take you take hundreds you know of shots and so you have hundreds back then when it was film um, and transparency you'd have hundreds and thousands from shoots so if you take my Seychelles work for instance where I was there for six months I had thousands of pictures that I was never going to look at again that were kind of usable but would never be used and so I just needed to have a bit of a clear out really Maybe yeah. it was something when I hit 60, I thought, oh, you know what? I've got to clear my life out of it. Um, and I did the same with prints. I, I had printed off thousands upon thousands of photographs. And I spent, you know, a lot of time, maybe as much as a week going through these during lockdown and just putting one pile of keep and one pile of get rid of. And I was happy enough to get rid of the pile of get rid of that I've made. And, you know, and I don't miss them. I won't ever miss them. Never look at them again. Um, and I hadn't looked at them for 20 odd years. So, so they've all gone. And the ones I know that I should keep, you know, ones that perhaps have family members or people in and, and that sort of stuff, then they went into the, the keep box. So it's an interesting point because to answer it, no, I don't feel the need to go through that process again of printing. The only thing that I would do is if I was doing a special limited edition print of something special, 
then I would do it as I, I love the words limited edition. I love the fact that it's small number. I don't want to do anything that's big number um, or for the sake of printing. I don't see the point of it. Um, we live our lives online now. And so I know that, you know, on my iPhone, I've got thousands of images and I do the same with my iPhone. I have a clear out and I don't know many people that, you know, maybe people do, but certainly, you know, Caroline is one. I'm always saying to her, why have you kept that? And she's like, get rid of that, get rid of that. And I tell her which one she's got to get rid of. She's no, I'm keeping that. I think, well, it's just a field. Why do you want to keep a field? It's funny. I have a, I have a pretty large external hard drive uh, with several terabytes. And, and yeah, I, I like every two years, 18 months, something like that, I'll, I'll go through my iPhone and then just drag them to that just in case I need to find that photo at once upon a time or something like that. And I've, I'll create some folders and such. But um, I, I have a very... I've always had a very throwaway, um, I, I've always been a very throwaway person, which I don't know is a particularly good thing, but um, I kind of lived my life out of three or four boxes. And maybe it was because I used to travel so much and live in different parts of the world that, sure. that, you know, you can kind of condense. I'm, I'm perfectly settled now where we are in the Cotswolds, but um, you could probably put all my possessions in three boxes. Right. And I quite like that. I I'm not a hoarder of stuff and never have been. Right. I'm not a collector, um, you know, and I, and I love the fact that people, you know, if, if, if you are in a position to collect cars, then why not, if that's your thing? But for me, if I had a, a big enough disposable income to, to collect cars, I still wouldn't because I can't, in my mindset, I can't figure out why I would want more than one. Of course, I'm, I'm in the minority and I understand that because I live my life out of three boxes and most people are, um, have a lot more content in their life than that. But, yeah, I'm a bit of a throwaway kind of guy. I, I, you know, I get rid of things. And that was a big clear out for me with the photographs. Yeah, I mean, the thing that I collect uh, that I, I guess I'm open about collecting, really, and, and that's watches, obviously. I don't have the space for cars, you know, um, and I think you know, it initially when you get into something, you just start seeing so many, you're like, well, I want one of those and I want one of these and I want, but the more you educate yourself on the subject and your taste refines your ability to remove certain pieces or remove certain cars from your quote unquote list. Um, it's just easier to do really. And, you know, with watches, it's kind of like, okay, well you think of the number of different occasions, right? There's only a few. There's sports watches, dress watches, and then maybe like the daily wear or something or the one you can garden in and not worry about dirt and things like that. But outside of that, it's just kind of like, well, there's only seven days in a week, right? So it is it's kind of that way with cars as well. It's like I've got my city driver. I've got my, you know, my saloon car for, for long hauls. I got my track car to go track and have a good day and then maybe a vintage car. So you could, and then maybe an SUV. So you got five situations where they're different, but like, why do I need 50 cars when five will do? <laughs> yeah. 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 You double up on those, on those uh, cars and then you suddenly, you know, you've got three SUVs and you've got three vintage and you got, yeah. So it's, I think it's easy to do, but it's just not easy for me to do. And on the watches thing, I have, I, you know, I, I, I've had some nice watches over the years and, and sold, sold them again because of my my giveaway throwaway kind of mentality. But I've just I've just invested um, literally last week in a in an Apple Watch. Sure. 
And I suddenly think that that's now for me, it was probably watch people that might be listening to this will be turning off and, and you know, thinking, what is this guy talking about? But it's, I can change the screen on it. Like I've, I've just changed the strap on it. I've got a nice brown leather strap on it with a nice, you know, normal looking face on the watch, but I can, I can swap it in 10 minutes and it would be something else. And, and that for me is fine. And it's got all the gadgets I could ever want on it. And it matches all my Apple products. So that's all good. And what's funny about that, you see, is then that I now have a watch box with watches turning around that I know I'm not going to go and put on because I've, I've now got this Apple watch and it's, you think, well, there you go. Got the, got the, you know, the watch turner and I've got the watches in there and I've got a couple of other nice watches I haven't mentioned. And I was going to buy the Chopard Mille Mille and you think, well, why? Sure. Um, and so I'm, yeah, I'm getting to that sort of stage really where I think, well, as much as I want it, it's want versus need. I was going to do a section in B500, this, this next issue, and I've actually canceled it now. But um, I guess it, that's, there's some irony in there. It was going to be called want versus need. And I guess that the, um, I didn't feel the need to actually do the section, um, but it was going to be some, some, you know, some very expensive um, gadgets and things to do with cars. And, and the whole purpose of the section was, you know, do you want it or do you need it? You certainly don't need it, but yeah, you want it. You know, there's, you might want an MBNF, um, you know, who, who wouldn't want a Max Busser watch? Um, but do you, do you want to spend 280,000 on it? Yeah, there's loads of people that want to do it because they sell out. Um, but it's not, you don't, you don't need it. Right, right. You know, you, you want it. And that, yeah, yeah it still might be a section that, that turns up, you know, it's uh, in, in the magazine, who knows. I'm dealing, I'm working with a guy at the moment for the next issue. And I won't say who he is, but it'll become very obvious when the next issue comes out. And he has what I would say is, is, uh, one of my favorite car collections he's he's i think he's nailed his collection with the with his choices um and he's just added uh something very special to that collection um, and as i say when the next issue comes out um, people will know exactly what i'm talking about and where this guy lives um but for me he's he's hit every every car i would i would hit as well hmm that he's got in his collection. Any teasers? Like, what country does he live in? I'd, I'll give you a teaser, but if I give you a teaser, everyone's gonna, every, everyone that knows anything about Instagram and cars is gonna go, oh yeah, we know now. So I, okay. I, I'm gonna pretty much give it away, and and I'm sure he won't mind because he's he's obviously in the issue. Well, this episode will air in like a month's time. Oh yeah, okay. So okay. so there we go. It's 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 um, uh, if you think uh, Abertoni Verde, uh, Abertoni Verde uh, F40. Okay, got it. So you know, there's there's not too many green F40s around. Right, right. Uh, that's that's such a cool green too. It really is, and the and the interior is is my it's it's kind of my dream color interior to go with it. The mm. the, uh, the I don't know you'd call it maybe cognac or or mm -hmm. you know, I don't know what he calls it what it is, but um, but yeah, I mean his collection is I think phenomenal, and he's got a couple. It's got the, the one that's actually going on our front cover uh, for next issue. And, and then he's also got um, something else that's coming out that, that's in a, a stunning sky blue that, um, uh, that, that in a month from now might be finished and, and ready to be delivered as well. Sure. A su super nice guy and, and super collection of cars. So uh, you know, what, more, what more could you ask in B500? What was your first car? Oh, wow. My first car was my... Was my um, was was a gift actually from my parents 
and it was um, they, it was their car, and they were upgrading their car and thought that, that you know, I passed my, my license in the UK in London first time, um, and that's because I'd been driving with my dad on my, my family's farm, the, the same people that then moved to Canada, um, for years, since I was about 12, you know, he would let me drive around on their land. Um, and I eventually inherited as, as a gift their car. And it was a, it was a Datsun 180 Bluebird. Amazing. Mustard, in, in, in mustard yellow. Um, and, and it was at that time, you know, I'm going back, it was 1978. It was a super cool car to have in 1978. Some people listen to this would probably disagree with that. Um, but I think as an 18 year old in 78, it was a pretty cool car. It was a fastback. Um, and, and yeah, I had that until I, um, rolled it, um, and wrote it off <laughs> wow. very quickly after taking possession of it. Um, so, so more, a better question would be, what was your second car? Right. <laughs> what was your second car then? My second car was a lot cooler. It was a, it was a full, it was a John player special three liter Ford Capri. Wow. So yeah, even cool today, I would say. So what are you driving today? Well, I'm, I'm, as I like to say, in between cars. Oh. We've got a, um, a mini Clubman. Uh, I don't know whether it's two, 2017, 2018, 2016 mini Clubman, the one with the, the back doors that open. Yep. The best gadget on that car when you've got wet dogs, because uh, it's like a dog car. Right. The best gadget right. on that, on the, on the, on the fob, is you, you can open the back doors from you know 20 feet away, so that by the time you reach it, the dogs can just jump in the back, and it's. It's a bit of a shit pit. Um, it's it's you know it's just completely, but but it's great to put a camera gear in the back when the dogs aren't in it. Um, I I have been through every kind of um, series of Mercedes um, to the point where I'm now not sure. In fact, we were only talking about it yesterday whether I'm going to get a um, another variation of an SUV Mercedes or um, a Porsche. McCann, um, or even a KN, which is slightly bigger. Right. Not sure. But again, I'm in the process of also going through that, that mental consideration of Arconic for obvious reasons. Sure. Uh, which would also um, be you know, a, a great option. We live in the countryside. We live very much in the countryside here. Um, and, and the roads around Gloucestershire, where we live in the Cotswolds, are, are little lanes and they're full of potholes, like big, where you lose the mini down a pothole, they're that big. Right. And so it's, it's for me, I'm kind of into the bigger SUVs, but haven't got it at the moment until such time as I make a decision. And I'm terrible at making decisions. Yeah, no, exactly. Exactly. <laughs> well, Dale, this has been... Fun. Yeah, well, this has been a ton of fun, Dell. I really appreciate you taking the time. Um, for those listening, can you uh, share basically the best ways for people to find out about B five hundred and subscribe, if you will? And yeah, I, I guess the best way is um, through Instagram, um, and that's quite simply at B five hundred magazine. Okay, and then either follow us on B five hundred magazine. Um, there's a there's in the bio there's a link to the issues and that's the easiest way of getting onto the issues they're all free uh you don't need to subscribe you don't need to um have any tie-in or whatever it is you just click the link in the instagram bio and it will take you to uh the platform which is issue i double s w which is another way of finding b500 cool 
and, and it runs through that. And it's uh, we're producing uh, quarterly issues this year. So the next one is spring. Um, and uh, then we go from there. Awesome. Well, I, I thank you again. Oh, no, thanks. Thanks. I really appreciate it. And, and, and I really appreciate the fact that you've invited me on to do it. And, and I hope I haven't waffled on for too long about, about nothing. No, not at all. Cool. Well, we'll chat soon. Yeah, I look forward to it. And, and okay. thanks again, Wesley. Absolutely. Thank you. I'd like to thank Dell again. He's an incredibly gracious person that I could easily spend all day talking to. As evidence, we actually spoke for an additional 30 to 45 minutes after hitting stop on the recorder. So big thanks again to Dell. As usual, thanks to Clear Audio for providing the noise cancellation headphones, as well as to Jensen Reed and Super Beautiful for providing the theme track. I'll catch you guys in another two weeks for what we are closing in on as the end of season four. Thanks so much for listening.